Amen. Well, good morning again. I hope that uh, you've been greeted a couple times, but my name is Thomas Settles, and I am a pastor here at our church. I'm very thankful uh, to see so many new faces this morning. Uh, before I jump into the sermon, I wanted to give just a few um, repeats of the announcements. Uh, this Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, I want to encourage all the men of our church uh, to be here. Uh, it's a sacrifice, but it's an opportunity uh, for the men of the church uh, to come together, uh, to fellowship, uh, to be sharpened, to be encouraged, and immediately after we get through with a little food and a little bit of time in the Word, we're going to do some work. Um, there are a couple of projects around the church uh, that we need to finish, uh, so we're going to ask everyone uh, to come, kind of have an all-hands-on-deck uh, day. Uh, we're going to do some stuff outside to kind of beautify the building. We're going to go inside the kids' ministry, uh, make sure some painting and details are done. So if you are available on next uh, Saturday, uh, please join us here at 1030. Can I get a strong amen? amen. Appreciate that. If you said amen, I'm expecting to see you <laughs> next week. Uh, so for the, uh, for the previous five weeks, uh, we have been in a series on discipleship. Uh, discipleship is a word uh, that is oftentimes used in the church, but sometimes I feel like we use words in the church, but we don't have a real understanding of what those words mean. For us, discipleship is spiritual multiplication. It is a believer intentionally investing in another believer for the purpose of spiritual transformation. Um, I believe it in my heart that everyone uh, will not have a title in the church, but everyone can make an impact in the church and through the church through the process of discipleship. Uh, discipleship is not something that is reserved um, for those who've been to seminary or the super duper Christians. Uh, Jesus made a very, very simple call. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men or women, right? He's telling us that the process of discipleship is an integral part of the Christian life. And as a, as a church body, we want to make a commitment to not just um, filling your head with knowledge. Um, music was phenomenal this morning. We don't want to simply entertain. We can give the music ministry a round of applause. They were a blessing this morning. But, but we don't want to simply hear great music, but we want to be impacted here at our church, and we want to leave the four walls of the church and show the love of Christ. But also, we want to encourage people to grow in their relationship with Jesus. So we have broken down discipleship from four very simple E's. Uh, the, four, the first E is evangelism, uh, where we are called to carry the message of Jesus. The second E is establishing, where you and I are called to come alongside others to help them become established in their faith. We want to help them grow in their faith. Uh, the third E is the E of uh, equipping. Um, God has called us to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Uh, saints is a term that may make you uncomfortable, but saints is simply a reference to every Christian. Every Christian should be equipped to do the work of the ministry, not just the pastors or the chaplains or the deacons or the elders. Every believer should be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And today, as we conclude, we're going to speak about what does it mean to be exported, but more importantly, what does it mean to be empowered, right? We want to be empowered to do what God has called us to do. 
So this morning, I want us to turn our attention to John chapter number 16. It's a very, very familiar passage. It's a passage that we looked at before, but we want to look at it again. Because John chapter number 16, actually verse, uh, chapters 14 through 16, really focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, it's, it's been said that the Holy Spirit um, is the forgotten part of the Godhead. Uh, some of us get a little uncomfortable when we speak about the Spirit, but we want to take some time and we want to look at what the scriptures say about God's Spirit and his activity in our lives. So go with me to John chapter number 16, verses 4 through 15. Also good to have the, the kiddos in church today. We'll make sure that all illustrations are appropriate. <laughs> That's a joke. They're always appropriate, guys. John 16, verses 4, uh, John 16, verses 4 through 15 declare, But I have said these things to you, that when, there, when that hour has come, you may remember that I have told, um, told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the Holy Spirit, to you. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are, that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I have said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, just for a few moments, I want to preach uh, from the subject title, Empowered by God's Spirit. Empowered by God's Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, it is always an honor and a privilege to be able to get into your word. God, I pray that you would help me to clearly communicate your word. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are the perfect teacher I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, and we pray that you would make them acceptable in your sight. God, I ask that you would not allow us to get through this message, kind of like we're checking off the box, God, but I pray that there would be uh, some surgery that takes place on our heart. God, take your spirit and your word and do work in our lives this morning. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A man by the name of Walter Ernest Yeo was born on October 20th, 1890. Uh, Walter was actually a sailor, and while he was uh, in the military, he suffered a significant injury in the First World War. 
Walter was wounded on May 31st, 1916, during the Battle of Jutland. During this battle, he sustained some facial injuries because he was uh, giving artillery fire and it blew up. His injuries were so significant that his eyelids, the upper and lower eyelids, were torn apart. Uh, after several months of, of surgeries, after several procedures, uh, after several months in the hospitals, the, the doctors made a decision uh, to do an experimental surgery. They made a decision to transplant skin from his torso, and they wanted to graft it into the areas that were impacted by the blast. The procedure took place on August, 16th, or August the 8th, 1916, and this is often referred to as the first plastic surgery in America. Uh, as we fast forward 100 years, uh, plastic surgery is no longer rare. It is very common. And the procedures that are done today are not easily or not necessarily uh, needed. They're more so wanted. Uh, the procedures that are done today have become popular because we have made a commitment uh, to improve our outer man to the neglect of improving our inner man. I want to say a point, and I want to say something here. It, it's okay uh, for you to um, take care of your temple. Brothers, it's okay to get you a lineup. <laughs> Sisters, it's okay for you to get, you, uh, uh, get your hair done, to get uh, your, your nails done, to get you a, a sewing. It's okay if you want to do that. But we cannot do these things to the detriment of what is going on in our lives internally. To simply improve what is going on externally and to, to neglect what is going on internally, we miss the reality that the work that God desires to do in your life is a work that begins from the inside out. When you think about what the scriptures has to say, the outward things in life, the things that you can see are the things that are temporary. These are the things that are passing away. But the things in life that are unseen, the parts of your life that no one can see, these are the most important parts of your life. Right now, you cannot see my heart beating, but it's important. You cannot see my kidneys working, but they're important. You cannot see my lungs expanding, but these things are very, very important. And it is a reminder that the parts of your life that are most important are the parts that only you see and God sees. As a church body, we must resist the urge to simply put on the mask. We must resist the urge to simply put forth a good foot because it's easy for us to come to church it's easy for us to live our lives in such a way where we are putting on the mask when inside we are crumbling and being torn apart. As I prepared for our sermon this morning, I was encouraged by the truth that the work that Christ desires to do in our lives, it begins from the inside and it works its way out. Uh, Jesus wants to change more than your habits. He wants to change more than your routine. He wants to change more than your preferences. When Christ enters your life, Christ desires to transform your heart because the, the scriptures tell us that the issues of life come from the heart. The work that Christ wants to do in your life begins on the inside and it works itself to the outside. When we consider the Gospel of John, specifically when we think about uh, chapter number 16, we see uh, that, that, the, that, that, that this is a really, really tough passage. And to really appreciate the passage, we've got to see it uh, from its proper historical and biblical context. 
The disciples had been with Jesus for several years. Uh, Jesus had done life with the disciples. They had walked with him. They had talked with him. They had done significant ministry with him. But in John chapter number 13, verse 33, Jesus told them that he was getting ready to physically leave him or leave them. And in the next passage, or actually John 13, 36, Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? While we may think that Peter's question revealed his concern for Christ, if we look at it closely, if we look at the context of the scripture, if we look at the nuances of what is going on in the passage, we see that, that the question that Peter asked Jesus really revealed more concern for himself than concern for Christ. When I think about his question, I think about the reality that many times the questions that we have for God deal more with what is best for us than what is best for God and his body. In verse 6, Jesus tells his disciples that it would be to their advantage that he go away. But the disciples, were heart, their, their hearts were filled with sorrow because they were concerned not simply about how the departure would impact Christ, they were concerned about how his departure would impact them. Their attention and their focus was on the empty place they would be at the table because they had no glorious concept of the place that Jesus was going to prepare in heaven. Their vision was clouded because Jesus' departure meant that they would not understand exactly how life would work out, but they really needed to understand that Christ was working out his plan for redemption for the world. Very thankful that um, my family's in here uh, because remember a couple years ago, um, uh, Avita got sick and uh, Micah asked a question. Uh, Avita was kind of laid up and um, she was not getting out of bed. And I remember my, my baby girl, Micah, came to me and she asked me a very powerful question. She says, who's going to cook for us? <laughs> Number one. That was kind of a shot toward me, number one, right? <laughs> I don't cook much, but I can cook, right? But really, her question revealed her concern for self rather than concern for mom. And when we think about that, it really does remind us of many of the questions that we have for God. And I want to tell you right now, it's okay. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay uh, to wrestle through hard moments. It's okay. Um, it is not okay uh, to have uh, the Christianese answer, right? We should be able to struggle through the tough questions. But when we struggle through questions, we need to ask questions that, are, that are, have a redemptive element to it rather than a personal and a, and a selfish element to it. When you look at our lives, oftentimes when God speaks to us, one of the first questions that come to mind is, what am I going to get out of this? Or how can I expect this to benefit me? How will I appear? Will this hinder me or will this help me? When God says that we should, that we should have care and concern for the poor, oftentimes we think, how will this impact me first? When God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, we wonder, how will this inconvenience me? When God says, forgive those who have hurt you, while God is speaking, we're thinking, I, I don't want to forgive this person because it's going to have a profound impact on me. The, the disciples heard that Jesus was about to leave, and they were sorrowful because they were consumed with self, just like us. 
Now, I don't want to sound insensitive because there are certainly times in our lives when we do need to be concerned and we need to be sorrowful. There are times in your life where you should be hurt. There are times in your life where your heart will be heavy. There are times in your life where someone will hurt you, they will wrong you, and those times are significant, but this time was different. This time the disciples were so concerned with self that their perspective and their vision was clouded. Peter's question about the Lord, where was he going, was not just selfish. Here's the key. It was limited in its scope. The question was not immediate. Well, the question didn't focus on, uh, the question focused on what was immediate. It did not focus on ultimately what was ultimate and most important. Jesus knows that the disciples, in the text, he knows that the disciples are filled with sorrow, so he shares a word of hope so that they would not be overcome with sorrow. One of my favorite preachers says it this way. He says, Jesus understood that his departure would not be a disadvantage to the disciples, but the disciples need to understand that it would not be a disaster. Jesus knew that his departure would be a delight. The disciples saw his leaving as a tragedy, but Jesus understood that his leaving would ultimately lead to triumph. The disciples understood and believed in their minds and their hearts that his leaving would be a hindrance, but ultimately Jesus understood that it would ultimately help them in their lives. They thought it would lead to their poverty, but Jesus understood that his leaving would ultimately empower them in their lives. They thought that Jesus leaving would leave them helpless, but in the text, we see that Jesus leaving would help them and it will ultimately make them rejoice and happy. Jesus had already told them so much about the Spirit, but because they did not understand the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives, Jesus takes some time to clearly speak about the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of every single believer, not just in the lives of the disciples or the apostles. What Jesus says in John 16 is a powerful picture of how God works in your life when you become a Christian. Now, here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of teaching, there's a lot of misunderstanding, there are a lot of opinions about the role and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of every Christian. As we begin our study, as we approach the text, I want to encourage you to, to look at the Holy Spirit how I am looking at you right now. Uh, it is very clear that I need the assistance of glasses uh, when, I, when I put on my glasses, I put them on because I need assistance for clarity of my vision. I can certainly see without my glasses, but when I use my glasses, it makes me things more clear. It makes things more defined, and that is how we should approach the Holy Spirit. But actually, that is how we should approach every single issue in our lives. When we think about the issues of race, we must see them through the lenses of Scripture. When we see the issues of injustice, we must see those issues through the lens of Scripture. When we think about issues of sexuality or morality, we must step back and we must see those things through a certain lens. And the certain lens that you and I are called to look through is the lens of Scripture. So we can clearly define exactly what the role of the Holy Spirit is for us. Now, of course, we can see uh, the Spirit's work outside of the Bible. We can see the Spirit's work uh, through the lives of other people. But if we want clarity, hear me, if we want clarity, 
If we want vision without impairment, we must rely on the scriptures so we can focus on what God has told us to. When we turn to God's word that was inspired by the spirit, before we turn to human counselors, before we turn to our own experiences, then we see exactly what God has ordained for us to understand and see about God's spirit in our life. Uh, to fully understand what Christ is saying in John 16, I want you to go back with me to John 14, verse 16. John 14, verse 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus is honest when he says, I'm leaving but Jesus is also honest when he says, I'm going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. When we teach about the Holy Spirit, I want to make a confession here. We are attempting to put into words something that is larger than words. Uh, something that is beyond human uh, comprehension. In the text, the Holy Spirit is referred to as another helper. Uh, the word that we translate another in Greek is the word alas. Alas meaning another just like the first one. Jesus used the words alas meaning another exactly like the first one when he speaks about another helper, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I will send an alas, he's saying, I will send another one that is just like the first one. The word, um, the word uh, helper is parakletos in Greek. Uh, parakletos means called alongside to assist. He is literally saying, I will send another one that is exactly like the first one, and that one is called alongside to assist you in your Christian life. When Jesus told the disciples to go and make disciples, Jesus was communicating that he was going to leave. But when Jesus says, I'm going to leave, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you helpless. I'm not going to leave you hopeless. I'm not going to leave you powerless. Jesus says, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to indwell you. I'm going to bless you with exactly what you need to be successful in your Christian life. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit because Jesus knew exactly what we would need to be successful in the Christian life. Uh, one of the issues that we face is that we try to live this life that Christ has called us to in our own power and our own strength, and that's why we fail. But when we get to a place in our lives, when we submit to this Holy Spirit, when we submit to God's will, I'm not talking about doing something crazy or something uh, aesthetic. I'm saying when we do exactly what God has called us to do, then we will be empowered to fulfill the mission that God has for us. Amen. When you look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, especially in this, in this text, we got to understand that the power that we have as Christians is not in our personal performance. It's not in, in the power of your personal persuasion, but the power that you have comes from God indwelling your life. In verse 7 it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 7, Jesus says, it is better for you 
that I leave you. For us, that just doesn't make sense because sometimes we, we have bought the lie that life will be easier if Jesus was tangibly with us, like if he was walking with us and talking with us. In the text, what Christ is saying is, it is better for me to leave you so that I can live inside you. Like what we have is better than what the disciples had. The disciples had him physically, but we have him indwelling our lives as believers. In our text this morning, we see three significant ways God empowers us through his spirit. First, uh, the disciples are empowered when they trusted the Holy Spirit's role in convicting. Secondly, the disciples were empowered, or disciples are empowered, when we trust the Holy Spirit's role in teaching. And thirdly, disciples are empowered when we trust the Holy Spirit's role in guiding and directing. First, let's look at the Spirit's role in convicting. Go back with me to verse number eight, it says. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, Usually, when we think about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, we immediately think about the work of the life and the spirit in the life of a believer. But in the text, we are reminded that the spirit also has work outside the church and outside the life of a believer. Yes, the spirit indwells us. Yes, the spirit empowers us. Yes, the spirit uh, seals us. Yes, the spirit fills us. But here in the text, we are informed of the work of the spirit outside of the church in the world. The pastor says, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. Not when he blows through the world, not when the force shows up, but when the Holy Spirit indwells the church, when the Holy Spirit indwells the life of the believer, then the Holy Spirit will convict the world. We need to understand as we begin this, that the Spirit's ministry is one of conviction. A conviction is to awaken an individual's uh, understanding of their guilt. A conviction of sin in verse 10 is because they did not believe. I want to say, I want to make a very, um, I want to make a very pointed statement that you may not agree with. Uh, You can send me an email this week. (laughs) Jesus is God's greatest gift to the world And to not believe in Jesus is man's greatest sin against God. I want to say it again. Jesus is God's greatest gift to the world. And to not believe in Jesus is man's greatest sin against God. Greater than fornication. Greater than adultery. Greater than lying. Greater than hate. Greater than murder. Since Jesus is God's greatest gift to the world, not to believe in Jesus is man's greatest sin against God. The Holy Spirit comes to convict us concerning our belief on Jesus. Conviction takes place when a person uh, becomes aware of how God sees them. And conviction is needed because we need to be made aware of how lost and depraved and separated we are from God. A person who does not believe in Christ is like a person 
who has a deadly but curable disease. He or she she goes to the doctor and they prescribe a remedy, but they refuse to take it. He or she dies, not because they had to die, but because they have rejected the answer. The truth of the matter is, all of us are born uh, with a spiritual sickness called sin, but God has provided a remedy uh, to our sin by sending himself in Christ. Those who are eternally separated from God are eternally separated because they have not accepted God's answer to the issues in their life. The text reminds us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, but the Holy Spirit will also convince men of righteousness, that Jesus is the only way, that he is our Savior, that he is our Redeemer, that he is the one who God promised to redeem the world. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, something that none of us can do, but the Holy Spirit will also direct us to Christ because Christ is the answer to all of our issues. Long story short, the Holy Spirit doesn't simply reveal the problems in our life. I love the Holy Spirit's ministry because the Holy Spirit reveals the answers to the issues of my life. No man can convict another person. Uh, no man should, sometimes in church, we feel like we should, we should try to argue people down. If you've been here for a while, you know that I enjoy a good argument. It just does something for me. I just love to argue. <laughs> but I've come to the place in my life where I've, I've had to accept, if I can argue a person into the church, then somebody can probably argue them out of the church. If I can convince somebody, if I can persuade somebody, if I can sell the story so well for somebody to believe in Jesus, then somebody can sell them and persuade them to believe in Hinduism or Mormonism or some other false religion. When I think about the role of the Holy Spirit, it is a a powerful reminder that the Spirit has to do the work. A, A lot of times, I get in the Spirit's way because Thomas wants to do the work. Thomas wants to get it done. Thomas wants to make it happen. Thomas wants to close the deal. But when we get to a place in our lives where we understand that only God can do it, then we make room for God's spirit to work in our lives, but also through our lives. When I think about um, the, the, the reality of not trusting the spirit, it, it's a reminder of what happens a lot of times in track. There are a lot of ways to this to get disqualified at a track meet, but one of the most common ways to get disqualified is by committing a lane violation. When a person commits a lane violation, that means they have failed to stay in their lane. For the church, we need to understand that bringing conviction, that's the Holy Spirit's lane. Changing people, that's the Holy Spirit's lane. Revealing righteousness, that's the Holy Spirit's lane. Getting people to understand the gravity of their sin, that's the Holy Spirit's lane. I cannot point my finger at you and guilt you enough to believe the gospel. But if I just share what God has done for us, if I share the goodness and the grace of God, then the Lord is able to reveal the truth to your life. When I think about this passage, it is amazing because it doesn't matter how much Bible you have or how much knowledge you have or how much Um, uh, experience you have, we've got to allow the Spirit to do the work that the Spirit can only do. 
I, I love the idea of conviction because conviction is, is needed outside the church, but before we get too comfortable, we need to understand that conviction is also needed within the church. Uh, if conviction is a person becoming aware of how God sees them, then we as a church need to understand how God sees us. That the Lord sees you more than just a, a pew sitter. That the Lord sees you as redeemed and as special. That God sees you as a carrier of his message. That God sees you as a minister of grace. That God sees you as a steward of his story. A steward of someone who's been entrusted with something. That is how God sees you. And we need to be convicted as a church body that God, since God sees me that way, then I need to see myself that way. Since God sees me as redeemed and as loved and as a part of his family, I need to see myself as redeemed and as, and as loved and as a part of his family. And since God sees me as a minister of reconciliation, I also need to see myself as a minister as well. Ministry, once again, I'm going to say this as many times as I can. Ministry is not for the people who stand on the stage, but ministry is for every believer in Jesus Christ. So first, disciples are empowered when they trust God's role in convicting. But secondly, disciples are empowered when they trust the Spirit's role in teaching. Verse 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare you uh, to you the things that are to come. I, I love Jesus' teaching because he gives the disciples exactly what they needed to hear at the right time. Uh, one of my favorite preachers says it this way. He says, um, Jesus makes it plain, and he puts it on the shelf where we can get it. And really, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit in teaching is to show us the truth that God has already given us. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truths that we need to know when we need to know them when we are ready to receive them. The Holy Spirit is perfectly suited uh, to meet the needs of the church because the Holy Spirit was the one who birthed the church. Uh, some uh, feel like truth is something that, we, we talked about this last week, some of us feel like uh, truth is something that is, that is personal, right? We've had this, uh, culturally the past couple of years, we hear, we hear things like, my truth, well, I'm going to live my truth. That's silly. For something to be truth, it has to be absolute. And in the text, Jesus is saying that the Spirit will guide us into all truth, not some truth, not partial truth, but all truth. I, I want to say something very slow because I think that we need to hear this. The Spirit of God will never magnify certain truths at the expense of another truth. The Spirit will never exalt one doctrine at the expense of another doctrine. The Spirit will not emphasize the truth in worship over the truth in evangelism. The Spirit will not emphasize the truth in preaching over the truth in discipleship. The Spirit will not emphasize the life, uh, the value of a life in the womb over the life outside the womb. The Spirit will not emphasize the truth to the ministry to those who are poor over the ministry to those who are walking in purity. The Spirit does not celebrate one gift like singing over another gift like serving or administration. The Spirit 
never ever magnifies one gift or one truth at the expense of another truth. All of us who are built like me are usually like a good buffet, right? <laughs> we, we, we enjoy going to a place where we can pick and choose what we want, right? We enjoy, amen, brother. I, I know it's about 12.05, y'all ready to go eat. <laughs> but we enjoy being able to pick what we want. Well, the reality of it is we cannot live that way as Christians. We cannot live our lives in such a way where we are picking the truth that we want. Where we are tossing along, tossing to the side things that make us uncomfortable. One of the greatest things about our church is that we have so much diversity that we have to face issues. We have to face issues of race. We have to face issues of gender. We have to face issues of those who are married, those who are single, those who are rich, those who are poor. And this context forces us to not just, uh, to, to not just pick and choose what we want to deal with. We must deal with all truth because that is the Holy Spirit's role to lead us into truth. So number one, disciples are empowered when they trust the Spirit's role in convicting. Secondly, disciples are empowered when we trust the Spirit's role in teaching. That's why we teach the Scriptures. That's why we go through the Scriptures, because we want the Spirit to teach us. That's why we're not concerned about uh, the newest, the hottest, the latest. We want to go through God's Word because it allows the Spirit to teach us. But thirdly, disciples are empowered when we trust the Spirit's role in guiding and directing. Verse 14 says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I have said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Jesus ends the, the section, the pericope, by saying that the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me. The relationship in the Trinity is eternal, but it also is a relationship of harmony. Uh, some have read this passage and they say that if the text says the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, why isn't, why isn't the Spirit doing that? Why is the Spirit working that way? Why isn't the Spirit uh, convicting the world of sin? The world is so comfortable, and I want to encourage us with this. When you look at the passage, I want you to go back this week, the idea and the truth of the passage is that God wants to work through his body. That God wants to work through his church. That, that Christ is the head, and since Christ is the head, Christ gives us direction. And since the Holy Spirit indwells us, the Holy Spirit reminds us of what Christ has taught us and what Christ has called us to. I want to submit to you that maybe the world does not see the glory of God because we as a church are disconnected to the head. Because we as a church are not doing what Christ has called us to. Because we as a church are resistant to what the Holy Spirit has called us to. Now, I'm not talking about anything crazy. I'm not talking about um, something uh, out of the ordinary. I'm just saying, are we loving our neighbors? Are we serving? Are we caring for the poor? Are we willing to be the men and women God has called us to be? I'm not talking about you leaving Athens and going to another country and being a missionary. I'm saying, can you live out the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Athens? 
Are you committed to living out the gospel tomorrow on your job? Are you committed to living out the gospel when school starts back? That is the issue that is facing the church. And that is why the world does not see the glory of the church. It's been said that Huntington disease and Parkinson's disease are disorders that attack the head of the brain and they hinder the movement of the body. When I think about a church, we don't want to suffer from spiritual Parkinson's disease or Huntington's disease. We want to be, in a, be a church that is willing to hear what God has said in his word. We want to be a church that is empowered by God's spirit and we want to be a body of believers that is willing to function how the head has called us to function. As we close, and I get the band to come on back up, we have three very, very simple points of application this morning. Very, three very simple ones. When we think about the role of the Spirit in our lives, all of us, must come to a place where we trust God to do the convicting. Though I enjoy a good argument, I must rest and I must resolve that for someone to change, God has to do the changing. For somebody to be convicted, God has to do the convicting. I've got to be so submitted, I've got to be so surrendered in my Christian life that I'm willing to stay in my lane, but I'm also willing to trust that God's going to work in his lane. And part of the lane that God has for us is the lane of conviction. Making people aware of their need for God is something that only God can do. Secondly, we must trust God to inspire and to inform our teaching. That's why we are a biblically-based church. That's why we want the gospel to be of first importance in everything we do. Because ultimately, we need the Lord to guide us. We need the Lord to direct us. We need God's spirit to illuminate his word. I can stand up here and teach and explain and, you know, put it all together, but ultimately... There has to be a divine conversation between God's spirit and God's word so that we can have transformation in our lives. And thirdly, we must trust God to guide and direct our lives. There's a lot of, there's a lot of competition in our lives. There's a lot of people trying to define how we should live, how you, how you should be a mom, how you should be a dad, how you should be single, how you should be married, how you should be a student, how you should do this, how you should do that. But ultimately, my prayer for our church is that we are willing to allow God to guide us and direct us. That, that we are so full of the Spirit. And when I say full of the Spirit, not that we get more of the Spirit, but when the Spirit gets more of us. When we are submitting ourselves to God. When we are surrendering our will when we're saying, not my will, Lord, your will be done, I really do believe that God allows us to live in a way that pleases him. Maybe not a way that pleases ourselves, maybe not a way that is um, like we have planned it, but ultimately, it's a life that God says, well done. It's a life where God says, I'm pleased.
I'm going to pray for us. I want to encourage you, if you have some prayer concerns this morning, some people to come up forward who are willing to pray with you. And as Chris plays and sings a little bit, if you want someone to pray with you this morning, but you know the altar's open. If you've got some concerns on your heart that things you're dealing with, some things that you're uneasy about, I want you to know that we're willing to pray with you. Also, if you have questions about what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus, we don't do an altar call every week, but I think it's important to give people an opportunity to respond. If you say, hey, preacher, I feel like I need to make a commitment to Christ. I hear what you're saying. I hear about the reality of what the scriptures teach that we are separated because of our sin. I hear what you're saying that God has paid the penalty for my sin on the cross, but I don't really understand what that means to have a relationship with God. Brother Kevin, come on up.